but we do have the ability to change the world. In my world, I've never anticipated We're anything. also change paradigm. We're more than just a, a collection of uh, hammers and swords. It is such an exciting opportunity to really change brains. We always lose touch with common things that everyone uses and where they come from. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts and subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out where their passion for work and inspiration for ideas comes from. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. We, we would love to have people uh, uh, spend more time with us, they, you know, because we're more than just a, a collection of uh, hammers and saws. Master builder, writer, director, and history buff, Charles Cook, an assistant clinical professor in Drexel University's construction management program in the College of Engineering, can do it all. As a member of the Carpenters Company of the city and county of Philadelphia, he knows a lot about what it took to build this city and the secrets behind some of its most iconic structures. Yeah, I'd really love to start um, by you talking about where you grew up, what your parents did, and how that influenced your later professional choices in life. Okay. Yeah, because that seems like a really interesting story about um, how what your father was interested in and what he did and what his expertise was sort of laid, laid the foundation for your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. let's start there. Uh, he always wanted to be a builder. Uh, his father and his uncle, all of his uncles, he had five uncles, were builders in some fashion, carpent- carpentry. Was your grandfather a tradesman as well? He, he was a tradesman initially, right. and then he worked his way up through night school oh, wow. uh, to, to uh, be uh, with a, a major company at that time. And one of the exciting projects that my grandfather did was um, the Circle Theater here in Philadelphia. Now, imagine this. It's, it's the middle of the Depression. It's the middle of the summer. It's in August that it's to open up. Wow. Okay. So it's like summer 1933, 33, 34. It's to be the first air conditioned theater in Philadelphia and theaters and movie theaters in those days, you could fit 3000 people in this theater. So people were going to come to this. (laughs) It's going to be pretty packed. This is going to be important (laughs) that people are coming. In fact, it was so important. Jack Warner from California, from the studios, Warner Brothers Studios, was coming out for the opening. Very, very important. But one problem. First air conditioning theater and the chillers weren't going to work. So my grandfather, you know, the show must go on. You've got a construction project. You've got to finish it. Right. So what he did was he got... Giant blocks of ice. I knew there was going to be big blocks of ice involved and fans, really giant <laughs> fans exactly right. involved in this store. And I really nobody, this knew, nobody knew the difference. You can't even tell. <laughs> so. Except you couldn't hear the film over the fans. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, just turn up the volume, right? Okay, but it opened. So, so my, my father's father was very much involved. So the family had always been involved, but my father thought he would, would be a trades carpenter until that day that someone asked him if he'd like to go to college. And sure so, enough, he So did. he decides to go to college, and what happens? Well, he goes to college, and he becomes employed by United Engineers and Constructors. He, he went around the country quite a bit until he arrived in uh, Rhode Island and met a sweet young thing named Hope. <laughs> okay. 
And uh, so they got married, and he 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 started to settle down a, a little bit. The war interfered. The, <laughs> they they had their first child, my brother. Uh, World War Two uh, came about, and when he did get home from service in in the war, was he what was his, what branch was of the, the military? He was in the Army Corps of Engineers, and there you uh, go. in fact, he was. Uh, he was there at Remagen Bridge, the, the last bridge across the Rhine that the Germans hadn't destroyed. Wow, so, that's an amazing uh, story. worked on that. Um, he was always uh, involved, and I was always tangentially in, in, involved in, in construction. Um, but I had, a, I had a desire, I guess, to, to also do media production and, and, and get involved in, in theater or, or uh, ultimately television or whatever. But then one day, my father said, there's your desk, sit at it. And I guess I got the message from right. that, that point forward. But it seems like you've been trying to marry the two um, your, the entire time. Oh, absolutely. Even with and your father's supporter. Yeah, and I've... <laughs> ignoring, <laughs> ignoring him. <laughs> well, he, he was the one that said you could do both, and, and I've given it a try anyway. I was very fortunate. I, I did a... I was elected a member of the Carpenters Company here in Philadelphia, and I did a movie related to the Carpenters Company that ultimately received a regional Emmy nomination. Absolutely. We're, so. we're, we're definitely going to get to your Emmy, but I want to talk about your earlier work. So I'm, I'm assuming that uh, moving the Grouper Wagon Works was something that you wrote, produced. Yeah, I, I did it. The whole idea there was the Corps of Engineers, and this, this was an absolute combination of construction and video. Uh, the Corps of Engineers were uh, building a dam, which is typical of what they do. But what was going to happen is we were going to lose underwater the last example of wagon construction, 19th century wagon construction in the United States. And the Corps had uh, enough funds uh, to uh, actually move the Gruber Wagon Works. But nobody was sure it could be done. It was such an old building. It had been put together in such almost Rube Goldberg fashion that they put out bids and to see if, if people could do it. We, we had, and I can't take full credit for this because the architect that we had worked with before, National Heritage, they had a very good record and they had already done some investigating related to the Gruber Wagon Works. They had done a historical report on it. So we teamed up with them and we put together what turned out to be the, the best price as far as the core was concerned. And then we decided, you know, now we got, now we got to move it. <laughs> now it's got to be done. <laughs> yeah. Now it's got to be done. <laughs> and there was a deadline again, a deadline on this, just as the circle theater had to open on time, that dam was going to be finished and the waters were going to back up and you had to have the Gruber Wagon Works out of right. there. So the Wagon Works is this historic 19th century or 18th? 19th. 19th, 19th century, century all work. wood wagon works. That's right. And as I remember it from the film, it's also, it's full of the things that they used to build wagons that when you walked in it, it was as if everyone who used to work there had just walked away one day. And so it has all this antiquity in it. And you're going to try to pick it up and move it how far? Well, it was seven, seven and a half miles. We seven and a half miles. Seven and a half right. miles. And one, one, what got us the, 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 the bid, we were convinced, is the Corps had an idea of what route to take. 
And we, we decided we're going to, we're actually going to shoot across a cornfield if we can get permission from the owner. Right. And, uh, so we did. We secretly talked to the owner. He says, well, it's going to be the winter time. I don't, I'm not using the field. So, uh, so as I recall that the strategy you, um, fell upon was to kind of cut the entire building in half. Well, in quarters, actually. In quarters. It, it, it was in four pieces. Now, these pieces were weighed several tons. I mean, yeah. 70, 80 tons. How long did you have to move it? Like, it, what, this was a two-day. Well, we were awarded, we were awarded the contract in uh, very late June. Right. We had from that point until uh, February of the next year uh, to move it. So uh, we had a lot of time to plan, but the actual moves took place in, in basically four weeks' time. Wow. The, the Corps expected us to, to match the, the uh, joints uh, as, as close as possible. And, and today, if you go there uh, and you look at those joints, they are perfect. I wouldn't even be able to tell that the yeah. building had moved there. That's right. It's pretty amazing. Right. So... So that combined your kind of your love of film was that your was that your first documentary that you had made? Yes, it was. Yeah. And so, did you learn some major lessons from um, both working the project and filming the project? And well, yeah, I, certainly the 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 lessons are are much of what you apply to doing a film, or much of what you apply to to doing a construction project are the same things. Planning and scheduling become absolutely essential. You have to worry about safety. And one of the, one of the things about construction construction projects is is they're not the safest areas. You have to you have to plan for safety. And you also have to find the best place safety wise to film it from and, and such like that. But uh, schedule will help you with cost in both construction and in, in video. And in fact, when I did the video, that this is jumping forward and we, we can come back to Gruber, but when I did the video uh, for uh, Carpenter's Hall, the movie, a hundred minute film that I did for that, the last day we had a, someone on, on set who had been on many, many projects. And he came up to me at the end and he said, there's no way you could have done this I, there's no way I thought you could have accomplished what you did in shooting. Um, and I've never seen that done professionally. How did you do it? And I says, I applied the same principles we do in construction of planning and scheduling. That's pretty amazing. So filmmaking is like engineering and construction. Absolutely. Just at least in the way in which you execute, both plan and execute the final, um, the final product. That's it. That's exactly right. Okay, so let's talk about Carpenter's Hall. So uh, is Tete-a-Tete, which is um, your work on the Franco-American Alliance? Uh, absolutely. Because uh, well, oh, I think we have to talk about the Franco-American Alliance, because while some of us paid attention in fourth grade history class, not everybody knows that the French came to our aid. So how about the background? Like, what was going on with the Americans and the French? Sure. Well, one, one, of, the, one of the issues was... Uh, we, as, as colonies, in, in, as the 13 colonies, 
had no hope whatsoever of of winning a war against England. The we most weren't going to win. <laughs> You're running counter to like all of our national myths here. Right, right. But we weren't. They, <laughs> right. They, Let's just be honest. There, there was no possibility. And in fact, as it all works out, you as 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 uh, the revolution worked out, it was the French that made it possible. Yeah. But here's here's the the interesting uh, aspect that that uh, few people realize. And in fact, it related to Carpenter's Hall, I always say that there are three events that took place at Carpenter's Hall, which if they had never taken place, we'd be singing God Save the Queen with an English accent. We'd be Canada. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, but one of those events was, was what I was to make the film about. And the French were very eager. They were very eager to see if these colonies really were going to revolt against England. They saw it and thought they saw it as an opportunity to get themselves back into the uh, back into North America. Right. The the British had pretty much effectively moved them out. Um, here's here's the interesting thing, F- Franklin, and he, he was a chess player. We know Ben Franklin was a chess player, so he was always thinking several moves ahead. He had a, a belief that democracy was going to take place. But he knew that if we have a democracy, the underpinning or the most important part of democracy is educated populace. So he wanted to form a library. He decides that he needs a librarian because he's not going to be be there full time. He's busy printing books. Exactly. He's got stuff to do. Exactly. Right. So he hires the one person that we know of that speaks French in Philadelphia. And he hires him as his librarian. Now, we're not sure. Nothing in his diary says that he was thinking this far ahead. Right. But he knew that we were going to need an ally. And he knew that the real ally would be be, uh, uh, France. So uh, he hires Francis Damon as his, and he starts to learn French from Francis Damon, knowing that he may be dealing with him shortly. What happens here is just a, uh, an extraordinary coincidence of history or maybe fate, if you uh, believe in such things. Because the French are getting very interested, and they decide to send over what we would call a spy to find out, are these colonies actually going to try and pull this war off? So a, a, a French spy... I've talked with the with the uh, descendants of this person, and they prefer ambassador. But <laughs> either way, one man's spy is another man's ambassador. That's true. We're finding that out, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, in any event, they Julian Lachard de Bonvoir comes over, and he doesn't know who to contact, but he he does know that this Parisian-born Francis Damon is living in Philadelphia, so he goes to him. And Francis Damon says, wow, you got to meet my employer, Ben Franklin. He's in the middle of all this revolution stuff. So for three nights between Christmas and New Year's of 1775, Francis Damon, at, acting as interpreter for Julien Richard de Bonvoir and Ben Franklin, and also John Jay was, was there at the time, they meet 
And they actually solidify the concept of a treaty between the French and the Americans. And in fact, from that night forward, although it took a, a little time for, for the letters to get, get sent back to France. Email slow. Got yeah, it, <laughs> it was. Yeah. Um, from that point forward, 80% of the gunpowder that was used in the revolution was coming from France. And so we basically had the understanding Franklin was, was going to get an invitation to go over to Paris and, and form a formal treaty. But we basically had the treaty from, that meet, from those meetings. So I always feel like talking to you is this education in both building, well, those two things, building and faith, building an Americana and history. Um, and so there are so many things in and around Philadelphia that you have these kind of unique insights into. So I was wondering maybe if I could get you to talk about how like innovation and uh, buildership came together to make you Philadelphia not just a unique place, but a unique metropolis that it would kind of become. You know, one, one of the uh, issues that I, most of us don't give enough credit to is, is William Penn really wanted a green country town. He's credited with that, but we don't really understand that. But he wanted parks. He wanted, he wanted a system of recreation for, for people. And one of the, one of the, well, two of the issues that William Penn should be credited for is, is he experienced the, the fire of London, which destroyed and killed many, many people. He did not want a city of that nature. So you see a lot of the colonial is, is masonry buildings. So he wanted them as fireproof as possible. Not that they were totally fireproof, but as fireproof as possible. But he also wanted buildings designed in, in uh, orthogonal uh, methods, which is, is 90-degree streets, so that the streets, streets were easily accessed and you could easily get from one place to another. But at the end of no street would be a, uh, a, a government building or a religious building. He wanted it to be a democracy in, in construction. And he really, truly wanted people living in a democracy. And in early Philadelphia, it, it's a beautiful thing, and we have to figure out how to do it again, is we had rich and poor people living on the same block together. Tradespeople, the president of the United States, everyone was work, living together. Now, there were some problems at that, at that time, and, and, and the president was, was contributing to them. Uh, but everyone was work, working and living together in, this, in the same area. Um, there wasn't the segregation that, that, uh, that we see today through, uh, through economics, let's say. But Penn should be credited with, with structurally creating a, a, a democracy. But then going back to the green country town, one of the things that most people don't realize about Penn is he wanted to ventilate the city. Now, you have to realize that, that cities were not all, all that clean. I mean, bedpans were emptied out windows and things like that. So you needed to, you needed to uh, ventilate the city. He, he created eight sets of steps, only one of which is impartial, partially still remains. But he created eight sets of steps from the city level 
down to the river level, to literally bring that fresh water air through the city and, and, and ventilate it. it. It's a concept that, that uh, he deserves a, a lot of credit for. I don't think he, I, I don't think most people realize it. And unfortunately today there's only about uh, uh, a dozen steps left of that. But that's pretty amazing. Right there. Dr. Charles Cook, thank you for being on the 10,000 Hours. Wow. <laughs> thank you. The 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. 